agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government has the government love. The government has the government love. The government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is Dr. Jonathan Ward, an internationally recognized expert on Chinese global strategy and U.S.-China competition. Dr. Ward has a Ph.D. in China-India relations from the University of Oxford. He's consulted for the Department of Defense, and he's founder of the Atlas Organization, a strategic advisory group on U.S.-China global competition for business and government. Dr. Ward is the author of China's Vision of Victory, as well as the recently released book, The Decisive Decade, American Grand Strategy for Triumph Over China, which we'll be talking about today. Jonathan Ward, welcome to the show. Thank you, Michael. Good to join you. So I thought we'd start with the title of your book, or really, actually, uh, subtitles. what I want to start with. It's uh, American Grand Strategy for Triumph Over China. And to me, that sounds like, if, if I knew nothing else, it would sound like you're arguing that, well, number one, this is a competition between the U.S. and China. And also, I guess, to an extent, sort of a zero-sum game where there has to be a winner and a loser. Am I right in thinking along those lines, just to start with? Michael, let's unpack that for a little bit. On one hand, yes, this is a competition. This is going to be a global uh, competition between two superpowers, the likes of which we haven't seen since the demise of the Soviet Union. Um, It's going to be very different from that in certain ways, and I lay all that out in the new book. Um, But the thing that I think people need to recognize is for those that are looking at the U.S.-China relationship um, from the outside and, and seeing the sort of spiral downward in this relationship over the last few years, one might think, wow, what happened? How did this go wrong? You know, surely the U.S. bears some responsibility for that. And here's this other country that, you know, is doing a few things. But um, bottom line, can't we put this back together? And I think whereas if you're looking at it for more of the inside and my background, um, you know, with China's vision of victory, which was the first book to explain the global strategy of the Chinese government in their own words, um, as a primary source historian who's been uh, working with Chinese language documents for a very long time now, you can see from the inside of the Communist Party's own strategic thinking. I mean, they've been waging this long term contest against the United States really since the inception of the People's Republic of China in 1949. And it's only the last few years where the USA has begun to wake up to this. So we're going through um, something of a wake up here when it comes to the contest we have with China. But we didn't start this. We had a strategy of engagement. Um, that lasted 40, 40 years or more um, and basically transformed them into a superpower, into an economic and now, um, you know, major military power. So we have to, um, you know, have a strategy to win. And that's what this book is about. It's a counterpoint to the Chinese strategy. It is um, directly about how to dismantle their own strategy as it really exists and therefore how to find a path to victory for the United States in a contest that we did not choose, but one that we are in and one which we believe I must, um, which I believe we must win. Um, So it's essential for us, I think, to to actually have a theory of victory for a contest of this, um, you know, magnitude. And that's what I've laid out in the book. So as to the nature of the competition, it is absolutely competition. We tried engagement for an entire generation or more. And in the meantime, they were executing on a long term vision of victory that we barely um, comprehended until very recently. Can, can you talk a little bit about what you see as 
the stakes here. I, I want to sort of lay out what I see as maybe a maybe not the worst case, but a bad case scenario. Uh, let's say by the middle of you know this century, China ends up with the world's largest economy, and maybe even that plan that I've been hearing about with China and those other BRIC countries. Uh, for those who don't know, Brazil, Russia, India, South Africa, they managed to develop some China-led international trade currency to maybe compete with or supplant the dollar. What's the so what for regular Americans? Why should we care whether or not we win or we lose this battle with China, in your view? Well, look, Americans have never really lost a major power contest, Um, you know, not in the last hundred years. I mean, we won the Second World War. We won the Cold War. I mean, we're living today in the the um, sort of peacetime aftermath of multiple contests that we won and that prior generations had to throw everything um, into in order to to come out victorious. So so I think it would be um, unfortunate for us to fail to recognize the the stakes of this, um, you know, in the same way that the Second World War was would have been absolutely transformative to world order had the Axis instead of the Allies won. You know, if the Cold War was won that we had not um, finished. I mean, we'd be in a very different world today. And today we're dealing with, um, I think, something that's just as significant. I mean, the Chinese Communist Party um, has this idea, essentially, of China's return to, um, you know, the the preeminent place in international affairs. They call it the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. It's not just an economic strategy. It's also a military strategy. They see themselves as being economically um, and militarily dominant in the world in the long run. And also for uh, for their system to basically flourish and um, be able to protect and maintain its its global interests. So we're talking about a totalitarian superpower that's already carrying out a genocide and undergoing the largest peacetime military buildup in the last uh, 50 years, um, as, as some characterize it. So, you know, we're really talking about the return um, under the Chinese Communist Party of a, a vision of the Chinese empire. And um, that is not one that Americans want to live under. I think most Americans can understand what that system looks like. I mean, we're talking about the um, you know most significant surveillance state ever built by a totalitarian country. We're talking about um, you know a military buildup that's uh, designed for conflict with us and with our allies, and with a vision of world order in which the United States is dipl- displaced, replaced, however you want to characterize it. But bottom line, the the absolute end of an American-led era. And I think, you know, in this situation, it's not only that we have to deal with the question of, um, you know, an adversary vision that's anathema to many of our most important values and principles. We also have to ask the question about America. I mean, if we are, um, you know, are we the generation that is willing to um, watch American power uh, slide backwards and and perhaps never return? I mean, is that really who we are or are we, um, you know? heirs to 250 years of American progress and, and victories and real, um, you know, potency on the world stage. And I would hope that we are, um, that we have what it takes and we'll find out, but this is going to be a contest that's just as serious as any that we've ever faced. Yeah, the, you know, the, the title of the book, of course, is The Decisive Decade. And when, when I read that, one of the first things that came to mind for me, and maybe I'm being pessimistic here, is maybe the decisive decade already passed. And my thinking here is that it seems to me that there's a sort of a China before it got into the WTO and early, right around 2000, right? And it was a much smaller economy, something like 15% the size of the U.S. economy now, something like almost three-fourths the size of the U.S. economy. And 
I wonder if the time for us to have actually taken action, effective action, to contain China's power and their ambitions was when they were much smaller and, and weaker in comparison. And uh, has has that moment passed? What, what do you think about And I know I'm not the only one who thinks that way. What, what do you think about that? Well, sure. I mean, you know, in the early 2000s, if we um, had a real appreciation of this problem and been willing to to focus on it, um, things would have turned out very different for now. But I think the, the reason I call this the decisive decade and it builds on um, what I talked about in China's vision of victory, which on one hand, the Communist Party has these long term time frames that, you know, some of which are symbolic going out to mid century. Um, but for us, I think we, we win or lose this game uh, by 2030. I mean, whether or not they have laid in the long term blanks for their you know, multiple decade sort of horizons and, and views of things, or whether or not we have successfully headed them off at the past, um, that takes place in the 2020s. So for us, this is the decisive decade. And, you know, I think that the point here is just because we didn't get something right uh, 20 years ago or 15 years ago or 10 years ago, I mean, we can't give up now. I mean, this I do think is the final window for the U.S. to um, take real strategic action against our adversaries in Beijing. And if we fail to do that, we're going to wind up with a 2030s um, where we have so much less um, ability to shape events and to, um, you know, win a long-term geopolitical contest. And we'll see the geopolitics get so far out of hand. Um, but in the 2020s, we still have this moment. And this is what the book is largely about, to, you know, come up with a new U.S. grand strategy where we can, um, you know, go for the trunk of the tree of the Chinese strategy. And that's really about the global economy, the shape of the global economy. I and mean, that's what underpins their rise, obviously, is the, the restructuring they're trying to achieve of the international economy with China as the center, ultimately, as the dominant power in certain key technologies and strategic industries and also markets and, you know, all sorts of um, aspects of, of the international economy. But we can we can stop that. And, um, you know, to me, what this is, is um, I talked about this in China's vision of victory, where I was studying the Chinese civil war at Oxford and most of the historiography talked about how it was inevitable that the Communist Party would beat the nationalists because, you know, certain um, advantages they had, but only one. And it was really probably written by the best historian in the, in the Bon Charney West End, the decisive, um, decisive encounters. He said it was actually the other side that had all the advantages. They just squandered them. And that's how I see America today. I mean, we're the one with the advantages. But if we don't take action, if we're unable to um, focus on this problem, um, you know, history would be written such that China surpassed a superpower that couldn't even figure out what was going on. And, um, you know, for, for me, for my own work, um, what's important to me is that that doesn't happen, that we actually get in the game and take our final moment um, in which to set things up in our favor and use our advantages and ensure that the battle for the world economy is won by America and our allies. And through that, you can maintain peace through strength, long-term deterrence, you know, sort of holding the line on the American-led order and um and the reconstruction of of the world that we sought to maintain and and you know i think it's important to understand both the communist party strategy um but also the advantages that we have in order to realize that that this is you know at best we have a chance to do this peacefully and um and that's really what what containment was about in the cold war was to peacefully um prevent the soviet union from succeeding at its expansionist ambitions and i think here we have a chance for that but it's it's really about economic power Clearly, you believe that we've made a number of 
miscalculations and mistakes in our policy regarding China over the last few generations, really. And and I wanted to ask you about that, if it was a, a, a total failure or a semi-failure, because I remember back when, and this will date me, obviously, when, when we were talking about letting China into the WTO and they, I feel like they gave us, they gave the international community some promises. They were going to open themselves up to foreign competition, cut down trade barriers, have less state control of their economy. And uh, to what extent would you say that they've kept those promises or have they just kind of ignored them, basically? Did we get played by them, I guess, in, in that sense? Michael, it definitely takes two to tango. On one hand, um, you know, I think we were played for fools in many respects. And on the other hand, um, you know, I think they were quite willing to, to tell us what we wanted to hear and not abide by it. And we have to understand that on one hand, when you look at treaties that China enters into, I mean, probably the best example today is the, the Hong Kong treaty with the British that they absolutely tore up when they, um, went into that city and just began, um, taking it over properly in the last few years. Um, whether you look at the South China Sea, ruling in The Hague in 2016, which they rejected outright, um, or whether you look at the entire Communist Party view of history, which says that unequal treaties were imposed on China, and therefore they do not matter. You know, we basically are going to renegotiate when China is strong enough. In other words, none of this matters to them. Um, I mean, they were quite willing to enter the WTO. I think they campaigned pretty heavily uh, for that entry. And there was also, as far as I understand it, um, a pretty robust debate in Congress at the time about whether or not this was wise. And I think there were some some wise things said at that time that, that you know, have, have played out in reality. Um, but look, I think we had this idea, and it was largely an American idea, that um, if we would trade with China, they would liberalize, they would become a responsible stakeholder, that's the famous quote, um, and ultimately become a partner to the U.S. in the post-Cold War order. And instead, what we were dealing with was um, a Communist Party of China that had really only somewhat recently um, killed thousands of, of democracy protesters in Tiananmen Square that was still actively suppressing, um, you know, Tibet and Xinjiang that was, had already conceptualized a naval buildup that will, you know, in time has already now uh, transformed the military balance in the, in the Indo-Pacific and that retained many of the ideas of the founders, you know, Mao and, and Zhou and all of them about this new China that would stand up and and ultimately retake its place in the world. And we just decided that that wasn't relevant. We either didn't know it, didn't understand it, whatever we did, we went with our own um, imagining of China rather than its reality. And I think the party was all too happy to um, to play ball with us and the transfer of uh, industrial power, manufacturing, technology, capital, access to our markets, access to the world markets. All of this was essentially brokered by the U.S. and our allies in, in their time of you know, post-Cold War triumph. And it, it created a totalitarian superpower, which we will now have to see what the cost will really be. Yeah. And, you know, I feel we were at this sort of end of history moment, right, where where we assumed a lot of things. But one of those things as well is that if we opened up economically, allowed China to become part of the system, not only would they liberalize economically, but they would also liberalize politically. So this was not just about economic freedom and opportunity. It was about making making people's lives better in, in terms of civil rights and, and, and civil liberties. And yet, boy, it sure seems like we got that incredibly 
wrong. I mean, what, what, what was that? Was that the biggest miscalculation in all of this? Do you think? I mean, there are a lot to choose from. I'm sure. Michael, well, I think that's a very important piece of it because you know why do we get that wrong all the time? Um, you know, for me as somebody who 20 years ago as an undergrad began Russian and Chinese language at Columbia, then spent about five years essentially backpacking around Asia, Latin America, Middle East. Um, you know, I spent a lot of my own um, you know personal time just learning about. Um, the key countries and regions by learning their languages, by immersing, by hitchhiking with truck caravans, by traveling by cargo ship, living in villages, doing things that I think we don't typically do. And, and I did that all in the, in the, um, Thomas Friedman era of the world is flat. And it was just so obvious that, um, you know, linguistic fluency, immersion travel, you see that that's just not the world is more complex than that. It's deeper than that. There are other views of the past, present and future. Um, in many countries that, that, um, I think contradict all of our sort of, <laughs> you know, world is flat type aspirations. And, and you just see how uncomplex that view of the world really is and how dangerous it is. Because at the end of the day, it's one thing to have an intelligence failure on a small scale. It's another to have an intelligence failure on the scale of let's invite in the Chinese Communist Party and get, um, a military technological superpower that now has global ambitions and capabilities because we thought they would liberalize. I mean, how was that even designed? And I think it was often designed by people that didn't know the language, um, you know, didn't have exposure to the country. And, you know, America could be very, very good at this. If we tried, we could be great at learning languages, at learning countries, at, at having real understanding of what's going on out there. But, but I think we didn't in this uh, moment and it's um, the consequences are going to be very large. Um, you know, and that, and that, that really matters because, um, you know, I, th I think we have to take a much deeper view of what's going on in the world. I mean, I learned when I was uh, sort of a, a language student and traveler in a variety of countries. I mean, you could take a history of the 20, 20th century, let's say, or a history of Russia or China or India written in those languages, taught in those schools, and it'd be utterly different from what would be taught here or in another country. I mean, every single country has a unique view of the past, the present, and the future. And I think until we start accounting for um, how these different views exist and, and what that does to the shape of world order, I think we're going to continue to make mistakes. Um, but this is the big moment, I think. In the 2020s, we have to salvage um, you know, what's, uh, what is still possible for the free world and for the United States of America. So you know, my belief is that it really is America and our allies that are the best possible leaders for uh, for the world. And, and we just have to grasp this geopolitical moment and um, use everything we can to succeed. So, yeah, it always amazes me how seemingly intelligent people, and I'm sure they are intelligent people, fail to appreciate time and time again how Western values and the Western view of what's important is that these are simply human values and everyone must share these views. And it seems to me that it's really led to some pretty uh, significant miscalculations and wrong moves. I mean, I think we can see this in regards to China. Look, and I think, I mean, we do have universal values and that is our, I think, our greatest strength. And I do talk about that in the book. I mean, the reason, you know, the triumph part is really about the triumph of our values and, and our ideals over this rival system with, with quite a dark vision of the future, in my view, and um, you know the fact that that anyone from anywhere can come and be and be an American. I think that's just um, the most remarkable thing about this country. It's just 
you know, sort of so amazing. And, and those are the sorts of strengths that we have and that our allies have um, that I think do allow uh, the possibility of worldwide leadership by the United States and through our um, construct of an alliance system that's actually global, that involves a variety of, um, you know, very diverse nations. Um, but when we make mistakes about, you know, places like Russia or China, when we ascribe to to them as geopolitical actors, our own set of aspirations. I mean, I think we make very consequential mistakes. And, you know, what we're dealing with fundamentally, I think the thing that was not understood in the post-Cold War was um, nationalism in Russia and China. I think it also matters in India and many other countries. But, you know, my doctorate was initially on the role of Russian and Chinese nationalism in the Sino-Soviet split. So I've studied those two countries very carefully and in their languages and such. And that's really what's bringing this back. I mean, the sort of Putinist vision of resurrecting the Soviet empire, um, Xi Jinping's vision of um, restoring China as the dominant power in world affairs. I mean, that stuff is, uh, you know, unique to these parties and these these countries. And, you know, that's what we're fundamentally dealing with. And I think we need to have a, a pretty serious and honest appreciation of that in order to uh, to win this contest. And at the same time, the universal values that we have are the reason that it matters for us to prevail and the reason that I think we will be able to bring a very broad coalition of nation states, um, you know, to our side in this contest with China and Russia. I wonder if some people hearing this might think, is this a little bit, I don't know, alarmist? Because people, I could see people thinking, well, you know, back in the, it seems like every generation there's this great threat and it never pans out, right? First it was the Soviet Union and that didn't happen. And then there was, you know, the uh, Saudi Arabia and the, and the Arab states. And then there was Japan after that. And time after time, it seems like people come out and say, this is a, a great challenge to American hegemony. And they all fail. Now, and obviously, you think that China is different. And it's okay. Can you talk a little bit about why this challenge is unique and maybe much more significant than those other challenges that ended up not uh, supplanting the U.S. And, and, and Western values, I guess? Well, sure. And let me push back a little bit because the Soviet Union was a pretty serious thing. I mean, the Cold War was, um, you know, a 50 year event that involved multiple crises. I mean, you're talking about Soviet military parity, um, their ability to have absolutely global reach by, um, you know, sort of capitalizing on revolutions happening around the world. Um, I mean, that was a pretty serious, you know, the Cold War, I think, was not a joke and not to be, uh, we can't make light of that. And the fact that we won has to do with uh, many, many actions and efforts and an enormous amount of investment of, of, you know, not just action, but strategic and intellectual focus from the United States and from our allies. So every single thing, these weren't moments that just sort of went up and fizzled out. You know, the Cold War was won by the United States and uh, the Second World War was won by the United States and our allies. I mean, Winston Churchill called it a close run thing. You know, we did have the advantage of being three times the industrial output of both Germany and Japan combined. So the USA getting into, into the game there, let's say, was one where we may have been the superior power, but the actual um, process of that war of the Cold War was required real effort, real effort in both cases. Um, and, you know, if we talk about Japan in the 1980s, I mean, it's just not comparable. I mean, Japan was not a military adversary. Japan was um, a military ally 
in, in the Cold War, in a world that was defined by a shared opponent. And, you know, by the time we have issues with dumping on world markets or, you know, process innovation or, or even, you know, then the nature of Japanese industrial policy. I mean, that stuff was also worked out. And the Plaza Accords, um, was, was, I think, a pretty serious effort to, to contest that. But still, we're talking about, um, a smaller population, a much, um, you know, smaller economy ultimately. And yeah, it looked like it was gaining for a while. But with China, you have all of these problems combined into one. Um, you're talking about 1.4 billion people. Leave the demographics out for a minute because that's not really going to matter till the 2030s. Um, you know, they've reached about 75% of our economy. Um, they have, um, basically become the dominant trading partner in goods trade worldwide. Um, they are leading in strategic industries. Um, and key technologies that, that matter to U.S.-China competition. They have a, a totally hostile geopolitical position from their support for Putin's war in Ukraine to their crushing of, of Hong Kong to their, uh, you know, claims on Taiwan. And they've built a military force structure that's designed to succeed at all that. So it's, it's really very different in that sense. Um, I, and I don't think in any of these cases did the U.S. just sit back sound an alarm, hope for the best, and watch things fizzle out. In every case, we had to act strategically. Um, and in this case, I think you're talking about the sum of many um, potencies that we haven't had to deal with. And let's not forget, we have not had a military adversary that had the same size or greater economy as we did uh, since the War of 1812, when the British burned Washington. So I don't think we should be stupid about this. I don't think we should be sanguine. I think we have to take it seriously. And you know, for, for the many people that have tried to sound the alarm on this, um, you know, it's, it's still, um, I think at this point, the U S is starting to see the nature of the problem, uh, but we're not, start, we're not yet seeing what action looks like. That's what we need to do. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about the military component of it. It's a, a long time interest of mine. I remember, uh, being uh, much younger and, uh, being just maybe obsessed with Soviet military power and, oh, my God, they've got all these divisions ready to fly through the fold of gap and all this sort of thing. And But it turned out that Soviet military strength was somewhat of a paper tiger, I guess. And and now when I think about, for instance, Russia's invasion of, of Ukraine, right? I mean, everyone was saying, oh, they're going to roll right over them. And yet we found that not only have they, we greatly overestimated them in terms of the capability of their military on a kind of an equipment basis, but also some people would argue that just the fundamental nature of that kind of authoritarian command control society goes into the military and makes them less able to successfully project force or capture objectives in a military sense. And and I wonder if maybe that same logic applies to China, not just in its clear ambitions for Taiwan, more largely in its military ambitions. And I was hoping you could comment on that. Sure. Well, look, I mean, my hope here, I think it's still possible to prevent a war with China. I think it has to do with deterrence in the Pacific. I think there's still the possibility of the U.S. reconstructing the military balance and, um, you know, dealing with the, the ways in which it has changed. But that window is also closing. And I don't think we get a real good shot at that if they continue to be um, a growing economic rival as opposed to one that's been contained economically. So um, what we're seeing in, with Putin in the Ukraine, I mean, obviously the, the destruction of the Russian forces is, is um, you know, achieved both through Ukrainian will and capability and also through U.S. and NATO weaponry. I mean, that's been uh, very potent. And, um, you know, for all the people that predicted 
how quickly uh, Russia would succeed at that. I mean, that's been obviously proven wrong in, in pretty uh, remarkable ways and, and all for the better. So, um, but with regard to Taiwan and the Pacific, I think we're talking about, um, you know, something that's a fundamentally different theater, different weapon systems, different, um, you know, kinds of military nationalism that have been brewed up at home in the People's Republic of China. Um, and, you know, I, th- I think we're, you know, hopefully we don't have to go there and find out what it looks like. But the bottom line is they've invested in a pretty sophisticated military. I mean, with, you know, space, counter space, you know, naval, air, land. I mean, this is a very different buildup than than Putin uh, had or, or would ever be able to achieve. I mean, China has a very different industrial base, very different shipbuilding industrial base, um, you know, than we do even at this point. Um, and they've invested, I think, across the board in, in this um, in military modernization in ways that uh, certainly have the attention of the Pentagon and and the rest of the allies in Asia. So I think there are many people taking it seriously. And, um, you know, we have to for, for you know, and there's the declaration of intent and there's also the forced posture they've put behind it. So, um, you know, I think I think it would be a mistake to to um, to underestimate it. And at the same time, I think we should be focused on preventing this, not on, you know, allowing it to you, you never want Xi Jinping or someone like him to think that they have an opportunity to successfully use force. I, I wonder to the extent to which we've failed to counter China in other ways. I think about uh, the, the Belt and Road Initiative, and it seems like China is, is reaching out in ways uh, very strategically that maybe I don't see us doing as much of or not successfully countering. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the ways in which you see China, uh, at least the key ways in which you see China attempting to and i would i would think successfully increasing its power both kind of hard and, and soft power and what we are what we are what we should be doing to counter that that we're not doing well sure and and you know i think the belt and road is an important example because people have lost sight of it a bit but it does um express the geographical vision of the Chinese Communist Party. I mean, it's an intercontinental economic system where they envision themselves projecting military power and tying trade routes and sort of resource extraction and markets all back together with China as the economic center. And they've invested about um, $950 billion in um, the Belt and Road countries over the last 15 years, if you also include um, infrastructure and construction, as well as uh, direct investment. Um, so, so they have a global economic vision. And I think that's something where, you know, if one takes the counterpoint and says, hey, look, well, you know, wouldn't it be easy, let's say, to dislodge China from Southeast Asia or Africa or Latin America? And we'll see how real the, um, the gains they've made are in, um, in these uh, especially emerging regions. Um, so we lack not only, I think, a global economic strategy, but I think we have we lack generally um, a clear idea of how economic power works in strategic competition. Because for the United States, that was always the big um, thing that we could take for for granted. I mean, we had that in the Second World War. We had that advantage in the Cold War, um, and we're giving that advantage away today. And that's the you know, one of the key points of the decisive decade is that, you know, all we have to do to succeed in this contest, I mean, one of the fundamental things we have to do is to stop granting um, the Chinese Communist Party access to our markets, technology and capital, us and the alliance system. You start to do that across the U.S. alliance system. I mean, NATO alone is 50 percent of global GDP. The U.S. alliance system as a whole is, you know, over 
we're, it's about 75% of global wealth. I mean, we're still the technological innovators and leaders, uh, but we need to consolidate that into a vision of global economic power secure our supply chains, rebuild our industrial bases, start to block China from access to technology, capital, and markets. And then you start to see their game just change entirely. I mean, that's when the ascendancy, I think, would stop pretty fast. And then we need to go and succeed in the emerging markets to have a clear idea of how to engage, um, you know, Latin America, Africa, Southeast Asia, the Indo-Pacific as a whole. Once we get that together, not only as America, but as an alliance system, um, that's how you begin the reconstruction of the global economy in ways where it does not depend on the People's Republic of China, uh, the way that it does today and the way that they envision um, the progress of, of those efforts on, on uh, through their own strategies. So, so that, I think, is the... the the heart of this contest in this decade is to win the battle for the global economy, to do it as America, as the alliance system, to remain the world's largest economy, to focus on, on a global vision of that, where on one hand we're consolidating the alliance system, but then we're also going for a second pillar, which is across the emerging markets, and to make sure that you know it's our technology, capital, and companies that are beating China's state-backed and state-owned companies in those regions to you know, to make sure that we're sanctioning the right um, actors in, in China that are tied to the state. I mean, most of its companies are directly tied to the Chinese government and carrying out its strategic initiatives. Um, so there is a definite, I think, um, game board for us to play on economically and one that we can win. Uh, but it's one in a way that they've invented. I mean, it's something that, you know, we don't necessarily use our companies to advance um, the national interest, but theirs absolutely do that. And, and until we get our economic engines um, you know, engaged in this contest, um, we're going to be, I think, uh, you know, just taking actions that, that are only halfway. And haven't we been doing at least some of that? I think about the CHIPS Act and, and other measures to prevent China from accessing certain, uh, certain technology. I mean, is this, is this the sort of thing you're talking about or are these just these kind of like first steps that's not nearly the scope that you think we would need to really provide a strong, uh, a strong incentive for China to uh, change its behavior? Sure. So chips um, is, I think, really a drop in the bucket here. I mean, you're talking about 52 billion potential for, let's say, 200 um, down the line. I mean, that's, that's a pretty small number in a contest that has to do with a $100 trillion global economy. And we're cutting edge chips, which do matter for military technology, for, you know, the, the way of life that we lead and the technologies we depend on. I mean, that matters. That's a cutting edge card that we can play. But there's a much broader picture here. I mean, you really, I think the financial system is incredibly important. The general industrial base is incredibly important. Um, you know, we have to also deal with strategic industries, including things like automobiles, I think. I mean, wait till everybody sees and you're starting to see some attention to this um, in the media. But um, China's uh, now the largest automobile exporter. I mean, this is this is all coming. That's just one. I mean, there are many, many of these. And I talk about all the strategic industries in the decisive decade. I mean, you have to talk about shipbuilding, even chemicals, you know, pharma, um, critical um, minerals and rare earths. I mean, uh, there's just a pretty wide variety of, of things you have to do here. And I think CHIPS is focused on some of the cutting edge um, technological zones where we where we have an advantage and where we don't want to lose an advantage but it's going to be a far broader economic contest than that it's going to have to do with um the global financial system the global trading system the key um technologies and industries the key markets around the world um you know i think it's ultimately about our fortune 500 and our fortune 1000 versus the 
the Chinese state-owned and state-backed enterprises. And we're going to have to win a battle for the global economy, um, you know, which is essentially a battle for business. And at the same time, the, the U.S. government and allied governments are going to have to take certain actions that only government can take. And we have many good examples of this through our policy history, um, you know, whether it's the Defense Production Act or the International Emergency uh, Economic Powers Act. I mean, there are a variety of things that I lay out in the book that that help us do this, export controls, you know, CFIUS, all sorts of things. But we have to do this in concert in a way where we have an ultimate theory of economic vi victory. Um, you know, our adversaries have that. We don't. And I think CHIPS is just a tiny, tiny uh, piece of what is a very larger picture. Yeah, I, I think when some people would hear this, and especially a lot of people on the more traditional right, they would say, oh, my God. You're talking about protectionist industrial policy, and this is this is anathema to our free market principles. And so clearly, there's going to be a lot of uh, a lot of pushback, a lot of resistance to something anywhere close to the scope that you think is necessary. And so, how do you respond to folks who say that you know we're basically abandoning free market free trade principles for for this and that's going to have disastrous consequences of its own look i don't think there's anything wrong with free markets i just think when you're when you think you're having free trade with a totalitarian state like china i mean you know let's be serious about what we're talking about that's that's not free trade it's just not i mean they have tariffs they have subsidization they have state owned enterprises um, they have a global economic strategy. It's just not free trade. So I think, um, you know, it would be fantastic for free markets to win this, but we're not going to win this as an innovation center, which sells our technology and intellectual property or otherwise has it stolen from us and then is, you know, produced at scale and flooded back into global markets. I mean, that's not free trade. So those that advocate for it, I think, need to get, um, you know, get a, a serious hold on what China's actually doing and realize that you know, bringing a knife to a gunfight never works. And that's what we're doing here when we're going against a mercantilist power and investing in it, transferring technology to it and giving it access to our markets. Those are the problems. I mean, I'm, I think it's fine for us to do that across the alliance system. And that's what we should be doing, but not with our adversaries. So um, so we are going to have to pull back on the trading relationship with China. I mean, we are going to have to secure supply chains. Uh, we are going to have to invest in strategic industries. And, you know, real American economic history is not just about free market orthodoxies. I mean, you're talking about many of the most important innovations we've ever had coming from um, strategic competition. I mean, the classic example is DARPA, um, basically in, inventing all the um, key elements of the iPhone or, you know, take the space race, for example, or, you know, our national laboratories. I mean, these are all essential for our innovation system, which is universities and uh, companies and, and government uh, investment in R&D. I mean, this is all real parts of the real American economy. So um, I think free market orthodoxies are going to be challenged by the prospect of a U.S.-China economic competition, but they will be, you know, absolutely annihilated by losing this contest. So we're not playing against a free trading uh, country. I mean, you can look at the WTO and see what that's like. And, you know, if one really gets into the Section 301 cases or, or you know, anything that, that the uh, USTR or Commerce Department has uh, produced on Chinese abuses of the international trading system. I mean, you can see that. You can see what we're dealing with. These are actually very detailed studies that have been made here to say nothing of intellectual property theft, which is as, you know, multiple U.S. national, um, you know, security uh, figures have said is the greatest uh, theft uh, or wealth transfer in human history. So I think for free traders to, to be solely concerned about orthodoxies and not concerned about the reality of the world we're living in, um, you know, that's a problem.
and we do want our companies to win. I think the, the battle for global markets is going to be about U.S. companies and banks and all of that. But um, banking our adversary is, uh, you know, pretty extraordinary when it comes to how, how foolish that is. You know, I, I, I can hear people, even if they agree with the politicians, even if they agreed with you on every single one of those points, might come back and say, even if this is all true, shutting to a significant level, shutting out the world's second largest economy from our markets, that's going to have some pretty significant economic ramifications. American consumers are going to end up having fewer, at least in the short term, fewer choices and higher prices. And how are we expected to sell this politically to to folks who have gotten used to an economy that's in many instances based on things that are produced uh, largely in China. So, I mean, how, how do we deal with that aspect of it? Sure, Michael. Well, it depends on what, first of all, it's not sort of a kill switch. It's, it's uh, something that has to be done over time and, you know, sector by sector, you know, product by product, or let's say industry by industry. I mean, if you look at this already, I mean, there are, um, you know, I mean, people are already having to rethink manufacturing decisions in China, not only because of uh, geopolitics, but because of, um, you know, the increasing cost of labor. I mean, plenty is moving to Southeast Asia. I mean, Mexico is a viable alternative for the U.S. market. Uh, India is even a viable alternative. You look at Apple um, trying to move assembly plants there. I mean, other companies, plenty of them invest in there. There's both a demand side to that and a, you know, potential, uh, you know, manufacturing base. So, and there's the possibility of the U.S. Uh, rebuilding its own manufacturing base, certainly when it comes to the highest ends of the value chain. Um, so I think if you, if you start to look at, um, scaling back um, dependency on China at both the top and the bottom of the value chain. I mean, that's really where, where a lot of the action is. I mean, a lot of our trade with them is about um, the electronics sector, and that's something, I mean, that's their biggest single um, export, uh, ICT and electronics, is their single largest manufacturing um, revenues by sector. So, you know, we're going to have to fix that anyway. So, so you know, people are going to have to, I think, get on board with the fact that we have to fix this situation if we're serious, and if we're not, um, you know, if we want to continue to do things as normal, when you can fix this, I mean, frankly, like you can look at all the different supply chains and figure out how to move them. And that's going to be, I think, the main activity, um, you know, of the 2020s and beyond uh, anyway, because corporate risk profiles, I mean, by the time you're really considering putting your next factory into China, I mean, that's so much shareholder risk at this point. I mean, to be, to be you know, making investment decisions in a country that is literally verbatim talking about preparing to fight and win wars against us. I mean, that's, um, that's, I think, bad corporate risk assessment. So companies will have to do that on their own. You know, there's going to be this process that I think is just a matter of recognizing reality where, where we have to, you know, shift supply chains. Um, and that's, you know, the White House has already identified some of the key areas, um, you know, electric vehicles, semiconductors, um, rare earths, pharmaceuticals. But then I think it's much broader than that, really. Um, and the trading relationship, which is, about 700 billion, let's say, and, and, you know, vastly in China's favor. Um, you know, it's not, not even a couple of percentage points of our own GDP. So we're going to have the ability to do this. It's just going to take, um, I think, uh, focus and, and continuous attention to make sure that we have better, more secure supply chains. And there are plenty of industries that are non-strategic. Doesn't matter, you know, if, if somebody really wants to, you know, do toys or furniture or shoes. I mean, you know, that's, that's really not the essence of the problem. But, you know, you mentioned two words you mentioned, focus and continuous attention. 
Boy, those two things sure don't seem to me to be characteristic of politics in in public policy in, in America. And it also seems to me that that's perhaps one advantage that China has, right? Because in their system, when there are far fewer decision makers and it's not a democratic system, it's a lot easier for them to decide on a long-term strategic plan and stick to it in a way that really is a lot more challenging in the U.S. context. And I guess I'm wondering if, if you feel that, that that's an advantage that we can somehow blunt to a certain extent, or what do you think about that just in general? Look, I mean, they're going to, they're able to execute, I think, um, on a strategic plan um, and a pretty complex set of, of activities be, because they've made their mind up about what they're going to do, and we're still debating the the issue. So, so yes, there's an advantage to them in, you know, in the short term, they're also going to make huge mistakes. I mean, you know, the nature of their ambitions um, and the fact that they can successfully um, advance their ambitions is already alienating many countries in their region. And, and I think has woken up the U S and Europe. I mean, so, you know, we're dealing with something that is able to uh, have certain efficiencies, but at the same time, um, by the nature of its, success and uh, hostility is is going to consolidate a, a counterpoint and a backlash. But but for us, you know, I mean, this is my concern as I as I talk about these issues is, um, you know, what you're describing when you describe the U.S. side is a losing nation. You're describing a nation that would find this too hard to focus, you know, too long term, um, too challenging. I mean, if that's who we are, then there's not a whole lot to talk about. We're going to find out who we are. I mean, are we the same people who could have won the Second World War, or who, who could have, you know, come up with the strategies to win the Cold War and, and successfully uh, seen that through. I mean, we're going to find out because because if we're really unable to focus, um, to see the problem clearly, and to take difficult actions, then then that is, um, you know, that is tragic. And you know, I think America really is the only hope uh, in many of these contests. I mean, whether that's the the world wars or the cold war or however this contest shapes out i mean it really is finally up to the united states of america um to determine whether or not it has the will the attention and the um grit to deal with the world's hardest problems so you know i still have confidence in this country but i'm at this point perhaps less alarmed by the chinese strategy and more alarmed by the lack of confidence um that that many people seem to have in our own ability to handle this. So, so that I think we have to um, get it together and, and recognize that, you know, um, we're just necessary. We can't let these things um, go unaddressed and we're the ones with the power to, to handle them. Um, but it will take uh, seriousness of mind and, and real focus and, and, you know, maturity as a nation to, to handle um you know, problems of these skills. And the fact is we've done it in the past. We've done it time and time again. So um, I don't think we should feel overwhelmed. I don't think, um, you know, I think we just have to get to work. I like to end on an optimistic note. That was pretty optimistic actually in and of itself. But uh, let's say under your most optimistic, plausible scenario, uh, how do you see this playing out? I mean, what, what sort of, what sort of relationship do we have what's China's role in the world, say, uh, a decade, two decades from now, if we actually do most or all of the things that you think we we should be doing? 
look, my my hope would be that we return to what Winston Churchill um, and Paul Nietzsche called preponderance, which is the preponderance of American power, uh, not the balancing of power, certainly not the accommodation of our adversaries and enemies, but towards um, overwhelming American economic and military strength. And that, to me, would be the purpose of, you know, the actions we have to take in the decisive decade, but then in, in the time beyond that, I mean, into the 2030s, this doesn't end yet. I mean, this is going to be the geopolitical contest that will define our lifetimes. Um, and if we're wise and lucky, we'll have a peaceful one where we return to overwhelming American and allied power, um, where the challenge from Russia and China sort of falls behind us, where we start to get time back on our side, when we realize and unlock all the incredible um, you know, technological and innovation transformations that are going to happen in, in the 21st century and use those to our advantage and, and begin to rebuild um, the, the giant advantages we had um, in the post-Cold War. And I think we still can do that. And at that point, you know, you take authoritarian dictatorships like Russia and China, and they just, you know, have far less room to, to push through military power and far less um, importance to the overall economy. And, you know, they've already developed massively beyond, um, you know, maybe even their wildest dreams, you know, 50 years ago, let's say. So, so the gains they've made for themselves are real, but that need not mean that the 21st century is defined by their power. Okay, Jonathan Ward, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Well, thank you, Michael. And thanks for a lot of excellent questions. We hope you enjoyed this Politics Guys interview. And if you did, we'd really appreciate it if you could mention us on social media or however else you share things you like. It would also be great if you could rate and review us on your podcast app. If you've got a question, comment, correction, gripe, manifesto, whatever, you want to share it with us, you can reach us a bunch of ways. Mail at politicsguys.com, as well as there's our supporters-exclusive Discord channel, and we're also on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to become a supporter of the show, you can find out more about that at patreon.com slash politicsguys or politicsguys.com slash support. And links to all that are always in our show notes. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, and Ryan Beasley. We'll be back with a new episode this coming weekend. We hope you'll join us.